0: I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe
1: in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? I know. Welcome to the broadcast. Uh, good to have you in studio. I am joined by Sam Storms and Tim Kimberly. Sam, um, you know, Sam, I think I i Where did I first come across you i think I think it was through the four three views book was it three or four views on uh, miraculous gifts yeah four views four views yeah. I think that was the first time I had ever uh, maybe what did I, when did that get published?
0: That was in I want to say ninety six yeah yeah, it mm-hmm. must have
1: been because it was pretty early on in my in my studies uh ninety six is one where I really started kind of studying a little bit here and there.
0: Well, that was uh, that still remains uh, our miraculous gift for today. Four views, I think, is the best selling of all the Zondervan Counterpoint mm. three view four view series books. It's still doing extremely well. Well, it was an
1: interesting thing whenever I came across Sam because that was back whenever I was an anti charismatic. Mm. Now uh, it, it was I was studying it. i uh, I used to just buy books that were anti charismatic. Mm. You know, I used to be. Very much anti charismatic. And it really confused me, Sam, whenever I read you. Well, that was my intent. I was just just trying to confuse the
2: gift of confusion.
1: (laughs) Well, for one thing, Sam was from Dallas Seminary, and I was like, well, okay. That doesn't make any sense, but I have to read this a little bit differently now. Because <laughs> yeah. it, it was only kooks beforehand to me that would be charismatic. Sam, Sam, you can't be a kook and go to Dallas Seminary. Come on.
0: Well, well, uh, 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 Dallas has graduated a few kooks. Yeah, okay, okay. Well, let's be honest. <laughs> they
1: sent Tim's here. I, so. think, I think more than a few. <laughs> more than
2: a few, I'd say.
1: But I yeah. came across him then. Got to know him, got to know through through his books and then we started having converse with scholars I think back in 2005 and I called him and had a converse with scholars where you you had just published your book on Calvinism mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, it was very specific on uh, election right. What's the book called? Chosen. Chosen for Life. Chosen the Case for, life. for
0: Divine Election, you know, from Crossway.
1: Yeah. yeah. Ed yeah. Komoshevsky said that's the best book out there on election. Mm. And so I got it, read it, then called Sam, then called Roger Olson, who mm. would represent the other view, and we just kinda had a counterpoint for two weeks on wow. Converse with Scholars. Wow. Still somewhere. I don't know where Conversion Scholars is at (laughs) (laughs) or where you can find it, but it's somewhere on our website. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. 1996 was one of the lowest points of my life. I became a Christian the next year. Oh, yeah. So, very interesting. Those are kind of some, there's a stake in the road there in 1996 that all of us kind of stand next to. Yeah. Different
1: reasons. Good stuff. Um, Well, we we are uh, continuing our series on difficult passages of the scripture last week we talked about the chronicles passage and god using evil for good Um, now i'm going to talk a little bit different this again guys this is kind of an odd one and i think you understand why it's difficult and why it's brought up and and i think we're going to have some discussion about interpretation here quite a bit but this is this is something that people will complain about quite often, not simply in the Christian circles, but really in non-Christian circles and in liberal circles and in atheist circles as they try to implicate the Bible as being, you know, uninspired at the very least, but kind of manipulative as well, Mm. Uh, kind of following in the pattern of the day. Mm. Let me read the passage and then we'll, we'll discuss what the difficulty is. This is in Matthew. Um, and in Matthew, it was going through the birth of Jesus. Um, they, they are warned uh, in a dream. They go to Egypt. Uh, Joseph does, takes Mary, takes Jesus because Herod is after him. They go down to Egypt, kind of hide out there for a little bit. And then it says in chapter 2, verse 13. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, Get up and take this child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and he left for Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill. Listen here. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Now, this is kind of Matthew—the way Matthew does things. He—he's always referring back into the Old Testament and saying this fulfills this prophecy, or this is to fulfill what the Lord said, and. and um, uh, brings up something. I, there will be a weeping in Rama. Rachel weeping for her, her children because they are no more. Those types of prophetic things that Matthew seems to be bringing out and seeing in the Old Testament. Now, the basic problem with this is this: that whenever you look at the context of what Matthew is talking about, "Out of Egypt have I called my son." This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet of the Lord, "Out of Egypt have I called my son." Well, what prophet? Well, we're talking about Hosea. And in Hosea, you go to the context that Matthew is talking about, and it doesn't seem to be a prophecy at all. Don't see any prophetic thing that has to be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. It says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so what people do is they stand up and they say, Matthew's manipulating the Old Testament. He's bringing up things that were not really there. He's seeing things into the scripture. Things that you and I, when we talk to people, we say, hey, don't read into the scripture. Mm-hmm. Don't, we, we talk about this idea called authorial intent hermeneutics, a big word there. Mm-hmm. But we, tell, we say, we want to find what the author originally intended whenever he was writing, and that's how we need to understand the Scripture. We don't want to read our own thoughts into the Scripture. We don't want to read something else into the Scripture. We've got to go back and figure out, what did Hosea mean whenever he wrote this? Whenever Israel was a youth, out of Egypt have I called my son. And we say, well, that's not prophetic at all. It's historic. Mm. Right. It's
0: um, Hosea is actually referring to the original Exodus out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so he's... In fact, uh, to kind of add to the problem here, and then we'll hopefully resolve it, Hosea is not looking forward. He's looking backward. Mm. In other words, this is not a prediction. Uh, this is not a prophecy. This is a, an allusion to a past historical event when God called Israel as his son out of Egypt, out of bondage, delivered them from Pharaoh, brought them through the Red Sea, and led them ultimately into the Promised Land through Joshua. He's talking about the original exodus. And so, as you said, Matthew um, takes up this theme, and here is Jesus being uh, brought out of Egypt back home after the threat from Herod is over. And he said what God did through Joseph and Mary in preserving Jesus alive in Egypt and bringing him back home, quote, Let's do. Put this. I'm, I'm lifting my hands. "Quote unquote" <laughs> fulfills what the Old Testament prophet was describing, and so mm. we've got to talk about what does the word "fulfill" mean. I and, think it's the and, word roma Yeah, and, and 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 and, in what way um, does the experience of Jesus coming out of Egypt as an infant have anything to do with the original exodus of a nation out of that country?
1: Matthew is accused of this quite often. right? Matthew is accused of reading in the Scripture and certainly not using authorial intent hermeneutics. What in the world are you doing over there, Tim? Sorry, I wear
2: headphones while we're doing it, my cord got stuck around my chair, and my head was slowly being pulled to the floor. <laughs> so I had to... You know,
0: one thing that might help, Michael, and uh, before we actually jump into an explanation of this, is to talk a little bit about how the New Testament authors use the Old Testament. Because I think unfortunately a lot of uh, evangelical Bible-believing Christians uh, misunderstand the way the New Testament uses the Old. Um, They think that um, it quotes the Old Testament in much the same way that a historical uh, uh, non-fiction book today would quote a source from the 19th century. Mm -hmm. And so uh, today, if you're reading a book, you expect somebody to use their sources accurately. You expect to see quote marks. You know, here's what such and so-and-so said, and you put it in quote marks, and you uh, cite it in, uh, in with very precisely, very literally, and then you have a footnote documenting the place where mm. it came from. And the fact is, the New Testament authors do not quote the Old Testament in that way. It's uh, oftentimes they... Will simply allude um, by a with a word or two or a brief phrase to some incident in the Old Testament. Uh, sometimes they will refer to one verse, and the point of it is that they are actually citing the enti- uh, the broader context in which that one verse appears. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you'll have uh, you'll have a New Testament author cite from the Psalms, and they'll only mention one verse, but in fact, they want you to understand. The the entire context of of, of the psalm itself, um, and sometimes they'll take um, Old Testament. For example, here's a very a very common one. Several dozen cases we have in the New Testament where Old Testament passages that are explicitly talking about Yahweh are applied to Jesus in the New Testament. In the Old Testament context, that isn't what the author was describing because the the Incarnation was not in view. he was talking about the God of Israel and yet in the New Testament Paul on multiple occasions will apply those texts directly to Jesus himself. Mm-hmm. So we need to realize that the uh, the way in which the New Testament authors will cite or allude to or quote or paraphrase sometimes they'll take an Old Testament story and
1: compress it and paraphrase it. Um, and sometimes we don't know where they got it from. Like whenever it says yeah. he, this is to fulfill that he shall be called the Nazarene. Uh, where does it say that? Is it a, is it a fulfillment of an entire book? Like you were saying. Right. I mean, that, that's been caused quite a bit of yeah. difficulty.
0: And so again, uh, we need to be careful. You, we cannot hold the New Testament authors to a 21st century literary standard. Um, they didn't have Turabian. They didn't have the Chicago Book of Manual mm-hmm. that gave guidelines on how you quote sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the standards of precision that we embrace today and expect of authors today is not something you can superimpose on the New Testament and expect them to live up mm-hmm. to it.
1: Um, I, I one of the books that I grew up on <laughs> and that I quoted for quite some time and I like it believe me I'm not I, I, I don't think that this is like an irrelevant book now or I've grown past this but there was um, Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict. Mm-hmm. And Josh McDowell would take predictive prophecies you know and, and show the likelihood that these would come about. And many times he would take these predictive prophecies like this. Out of Egypt have I called my son. There is a weeping in Ramah. A lot of the similar types of things here that we're talking about that Matthew does and say, what's the what, what's the um, likelihood that these would be fulfilled? And we come up with all these great statistics, which, which uh, we would say, wow, there's just no way they could be fulfilled outside of this. And then we use this sometimes in circles where there are unbelievers. And we say, well, how in the world would this be fulfilled if God is not in charge, if there is not a God? How could somebody predict that? And they say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? That's not even a prediction. I mean, out of Egypt have I called my son. It's not as if, it's not as if if God did not call uh, Jesus out of Egypt, we'd say, "Well, the gig's up." I mean, Hosea clearly said mm. that Jesus was sometime to be called out of Egypt, and it never happened. But maybe it'll happen in the future. You know, <laughs> he will be called. The, the, and and Theodore of Mopsustia in um
2: nice way to bring okay, it up and <laughs> nice.
1: Antioch was one of the first that I see in church history to bring this up and say we need to distinguish between that which is really true predictive prophecy and those that are mere illusions that the New Testament writers grab a hold of and use in such a way that they 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 see Christ in the old testament they see him everywhere mm-hmm. and as we sit here and discuss this we have to ask this question was Christ in this passage whenever Hosea in eleven one said out of Egypt, Have I called my son didn 't Matthew read something into that that was not there, and is that justified number one, and is that an example for us to follow Because you and I would say to everybody that we are that that we teach we'd say don 't read things into it don 't read your life into it don 't take your immediate circumstance and make something that 's a historic book in the Old Testament apply to that because it's so dangerous. If we opened up our hermeneutics and said, do what Matthew did, we might be in trouble, right? Right. Yeah, and maybe the best place for us to start is with this word fulfilled. Hmm.
0: And let's, we need to talk a little bit about that because as you indicated, uh, most people will think in terms of s- explicit, strict, predictive prophecy when they hear that word fulfilled. But the fact of the matter is, especially Matthew uses it in a in a slightly different way. Now, he certainly can use it in that sense, but there are many things in the Old Testament that were not predictive that Jesus fulfilled. Um, for example, the Levitical sacrifice. That's not prophetic, but Jesus, quote unquote, fulfilled it. Um, the, um, you think, for example, of uh, the temple. Uh, and yet, you know, again, that's not predictive prophecy. Uh, you know, the elaborate measures taken to uh, establish the tabernacle and then Solomon's temple. And yet we read in the new Testament, Jesus says something greater than the temple is here referring to himself. So there are institutions in the old Testament. There are people, there are events that are not inherently predictive. They're not, they don't say, um, all right, we're doing this because someday there's going to come about uh a, a consummate expression of this And in that sense it will then be fulfilled So the word fulfillment um, it Should not be pressed to mean That there is always an explicitly predictive element hmm. I think that personally And I going to jump right into this I think what we're seeing in Matthew 2 Is an expression of what we call typology And typology is not the same as prophecy People get them mixed up Uh, Typology does not have an explicitly predictive element in it. In typology, what we are saying is that there are patterns that we find in the Old Testament, according to which God operated, that are repeated in the New Testament in a heightened and intensified and more consummative uh, uh, way. So, for example, um, let's take the Exodus the Exodus itself. Um, here's Israel as a nation being delivered out of physical bondage and oppression. Well, that's not predictive of anything yet to come. And yet, in the New Testament, the death of Jesus is referred to as his Exodus because he is delivering us out of an even greater bondage—a spiritual bondage to sin. So there was a there was a, a, a pattern of God's providential dealings in the Old Testament that is found to repeat itself at another time in redemptive history in this case in the New Testament in which maybe the uh, the more uh, what we call physical or earthly dimension of the old is seen to be repeated in a, a more spiritual or um, deeper sense in the new so I think that's what's happening here in Matthew 2 Um and of course, now again, I'm getting ready to reveal my uh, my eschatology a little bit here, so this might lead us into some disagreement. <laughs> but I think what Matthew wants us to understand is that whereas the nation Israel was God's son, um, Jesus consummately is God's son, and that in a, that in essence, Jesus Himself is Israel. That there is being manifest in his life and his experience the consummate purpose of God that was initially designed for the nation itself. And so Matthew is discerning by the Spirit a pattern in the way that God dealt with a nation. He's now dealing so with his true son, Jesus, the Messiah. And so um, there is a sense in which, um, again, the providential dealings of God, it can be through an individual. Uh, For example, we have instances where Elijah and Elisha are typological of Jesus, or David is typological of Jesus. Well, and John the Baptist being typological of Elijah. Exactly. Um, And and numerous other instances of this sort. I think, and this gets us a little bit off base here, I think the Old Testament Sabbath regulation was typological of the ultimate rest that we have in Jesus. Um, now, again, these aren't, you won't go in the Old Testament and read about those people or those places or those events or those institutions and find anything that that comes close to um, this is what's going to happen uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. You just read the New Testament and you see the New Testament authors discerning in the, in the current circumstance of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus and the creation of His body, the church, a repetition and a heightening, an intensification, if you will, of patterns that we find in the
1: Old Testament. And this is so important because we've got to be very careful, Tim, whenever we're talking to unbelievers in this sense, because I think we, we kind of use these as apologetic discourses rather than being able to see the Bible in its fullness as Christians, kind of a faith-seeking, understanding approach. I think we see this and we say, wow, look at this. I mean, the entire Old Testament just is a shadow of Christ. It's a It's the image of Christ in so many different ways. But then, whenever we, we approach certain passages, we've got to be careful. I mean, whenever it says they have pierced my hands and feet, that doesn't, you know, in Matthew and he says this fulfills they have pierced my hands and my feet, or or the uh, not a bone will uh, was broken. Um, these are all symbolic typological passages, typological that that point to Jesus. Now, he, here's what some things some people will do, guys is they'll say, oh, Matthew was just following in the spirit of his age. That's the way people interpreted then. And maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. I don't have that much of a problem saying that Matthew followed in a certain pattern of the day. However, one of the things that uh, people did was what's called Pesher, and we find this in the Dead Sea Scrolls. whenever Whenever we read the Dead Sea Scrolls and say, how did the... Community in Qumran interpret the Old Testament. And we begin to find out that they had this idea of, of immediate fulfillment in their own lives for everything, kind of. Uh, we would call it today newspaper eschatology you know you open the newspaper and whatever happened that day you say wow let's apply this to the book of revelation and figure out how it is fulfilling the book of revelation and we say well well back off you don't need to do that that's very very dangerous mm. whenever you begin to do this newspaper eschatology you're reading into the scripture
2: so it could be like saying uh, hey is the Oklahoma City Thunder going to win the NBA finals well let's look to the book of revelation and let's uh, uh, you know, start making connections, and, and the Bible will yeah, show there's us a
1: reference to thunder in the Book of Revelation. <laughs> exactly. Well,
2: oh, wow, we're onto something. <laughs> well, it would actually
1: be after the fact if we won the finals, then we, we, could, we would look back in the scripture back. and yeah. say this fulfills something.
2: Well, I mean, it might be better for us financially if we can do it predictive. Yeah. That's uh, true. Then we can start yeah. making some wagers.
0: Let, let me give uh, maybe another example from Matthew that uh, that will help people understand what he's doing in this particular case we're looking at. Think about Jesus being led into the wilderness for 40 days and nights, being tempted by the enemy. All scholars recognize that he is, and here I'm going to use a big word, he's recapitulating in his own experience that of the nation Israel of spending 40 years in the wilderness being tempted. And Jesus is succeeding by resisting Satan's temptations where Israel, God's first son, as it were, if you can understand my language there, failed. Or, for example, when, um, when I think most people know this, when Satan brought these three temptations to Jesus, you know, turn stones into bread, uh, bow down in front of me, and so forth. Um, when Jesus responded to him, he quoted Old Testament texts that were descriptive of Israel's experience during that 40-year period of wandering. So in effect, Jesus is saying, I am recapitulating in myself in a successful way the experience that the nation had in an unsuccessful way. Where Israel, God's son, failed, I, as God's true consummate son, am now succeeding. And yet when you go back into the Old Testament and you read about Israel's experience in the wilderness, you don't see any predictive prophetic words that would give you the sense, oh, we've got to wait. Someday someone's going to come along and do successfully uh, what Israel as a nation failed at. And yet very clearly Jesus is in the text that he cites in in, in response to Satan, uh, in the way that he um uh, lived out his life is in essence saying i now embody in my own experience as god's true son the fulfillment of what israel as god's son failed to bring to fruition so again so it's typological it's not prophetic it's not predictive but god's providential dealings with a nation are now being repeated in a consummated way In his son,
2: and and I think the typological hermeneutic idea. I think one of the keys for it, though, of how it relates to people interpreting it today. So, kind of that question of someone comes in and is like, "Hey, I'm seeing the way that Matthew is using the Old Testament. I'm going to start using that same hermeneutic and start coming up with ideas." Is that you? On the road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking them through of how he fulfills. Uh, and how basically all of the Old Testament is pointing to him. And so I think where you're going to come up with terrible error is if you are using this typologically now to apply to you because you're already on the wrong side of the climax. You know, The consummation is Jesus. And so if you're reading Scripture and you say, you know, I was reading in the Psalms and I came across this passage that just really reminds me of Jesus, and it really brings to mind how Jesus is like this, Then I would say, yeah, that's totally fine. You know, yeah, that's Jesus. That's in line with how Matthew is using Scripture. But if you're reading that book in Psalms and you're saying, you know what, now I know if I should take this job with this company or not, because, you know, I'm seeing now that this is pointing me in this direction, I'd say, no, you're not the typological fulfillment of all of Scripture Jesus is. Well,
1: see, I'm going to disagree with you, Tim. Okay, bring it on, brother. Not the last part but but I don't that Jesus
2: is the fulfillment. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, not Jesus
1: the fulfillment. But that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything and that we can read Jesus into everything and be well, okay. Well, yeah, and with I'm
2: it. not saying we could we no, I'm not saying that we read Jesus into everything. You know, I'm not saying that Judas went and hung himself and I'm like, "Man, that's that reminds me of Jesus." Well, I'm yeah, not the old testament,
1: you know. Yeah. There ate the apple and you know that's that's jesus no but know, i'm really. saying
2: when we use typological so i'm not saying every verse is this typological fulfillment that jesus fulfills it but i'm saying like when this hermeneutic is used in the new testament it's used to show jesus being the typological well, fulfillment
1: he- here's one of the things that we would say ask this question sam did did matthew use an authorial intent hermeneutic
0: now, let me make sure I understand what you're asking. Are you saying uh, we need to go back into Hosea? When Hosea wrote those words, did he consciously have in mind that God was inspiring him to record those statements because there would be what we would call an anti-typical fulfillment
1: centuries later? I would have to say no. Double reference. People would say All of these have double reference. The author knew about it. You say no. I would say I I don't have any
0: reason to believe that Hosea had in mind the incarnate Christ and his parents bringing him back out of Egypt after the threat from Herod. I don't think that Hosea had that in mind. I think God had it in mind when he providentially orchestrated the the first exodus of the nation Israel because it was his intent to so um, orchestrate the life of Jesus that coming out of Egypt of the true son of God would be repeated in a heightened and consummated scale.
2: Which I would agree with. I would say, you know, we agree with the dual authorship of Scripture. So when you say authorial intent, I would say that, that the human author uh, was not a robot. He knew what he was writing, but he might not have known the full extent of what he was writing. But uh, God, as the dual author, knew the full extent of what he was
1: writing. Lots of passages like that. I mean, whenever David said, uh, I've been betrayed, and, you know, they say his by a friend. Then it says this fulfills the Scripture in the Psalms where I've been betrayed, you know, that uh, a close friend will betray me. David doesn't, we were, we were saying that we don't have to have David consciously thinking, you know, maybe I'm being betrayed, but pretty soon here there'll be a greater one. Well, take, for example, Psalm 16, which is obviously about David and his confidence that God will not
0: abandon his soul to Sheol. Mm-hmm. And yet we have Peter in Acts 2 on Pentecost Quoting that, I think it's Acts two, yeah, uh, and applying it to David's greater son Jesus as as uh, proof that the resurrection happened because God did not abandon his soul to shield but raised him from the dead. Hmm. And one other thing, it, uh, I think it's important that we point this out: we're not talking here about allegory. Typology is not allegory. Allegory has no historical basis in a text. It's reading into a text something that is utterly foreign to any authorial intent. Let me give you a, since we're in Matthew 2, here's a good example of this. I can't remember which of the church fathers uh, did this, but right after our passage, it says that when Herod found out that he'd been tricked uh, about, um, about Jesus by the wise men, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. And there were actually uh, church fathers who were embroiled in this debate over the nature of the Godhead. You know, are there three persons in the Godhead? Is God triune? Others were what they called binitarian or binitarian. They believe there are only two persons in the Godhead, the Father and the Son. And then, of course, there were the Unitarians who said, no, there are no distinctions. This would be Arius. uh, um." Well, some of them said, well, there it is. Uh, There is an affirmation of of Trinitarianism because... Uh, The fact that those who were two years older or younger, so if you're two years or one year, you get killed. But if you're older than that, you're three, you don't. That proves Trinitarianism is biblical. I mean, they literally would make that kind of an argument.
1: I actually just made that argument the other day. From a text that has
0: absolutely nothing (laughs) to do with with the nature of the Godhead.
1: And Sam, that's what we're, I'm trying to get at, I guess. And I know we're mm-hmm. running out of time, but I think we look at these things and I think we, we say, <clears throat> I guess this is the question. I don't mean to extend it. But the question is, okay, Matthew clearly was able to see things that had this double reference, this fuller reference, this this typology. Peter was as well. The early apostles were. the The thing that I'm asking here is that Do you and I, not inspired writers of Scripture, not apostles the way that they were apostles, do you and I have the ability to see this kind of fuller, double referent in the Old Testament? Can Uh, we can we send our people, or even in the New Testament, or or
0: even more so, people who see in New Testament events and then, if I can say it, extrapolate from that? into current events today and say, oh, we're seeing today the anti-typical fulfillment of some event or pattern or person in the New Testament. I think the answer to that is no. I think that typology is governed by the canon itself, by the extent of the canon. From Genesis to Revelation, it's an inner canonical phenomenon in which we see, uh, because that's the only book that's inspired. Um, the, the, The New York Times is not. Um, you know, Fox News is not. Um, a historical novel written today is not. It is only within the inspired canon of Scripture that we see um, type and anti type in operation.
2: And I think the, the subtle distinction is basically just don't think of yourself as so high and mighty as you do. And when you have the Scripture in your hand, tremble a little bit, that you have God's words in your hand. And yes, you can read passages that, and God will apply them to your life. But don't stand so strong to say, God showed me this thing that he has showed no one else and here is this new, you know, typological fulfillment. Just say, you know what, this passage it reminds me of this thing and maybe it's directly speaking that maybe it's not. Just like hold it a little looser, I think. Don't we have some people come in that credo house that tell us wacky stuff that they're reading into scripture. And I think that's why we read scripture in community too. That we can read it for ourselves, but then we bounce it off of people and if someone's like, I think you sound crazy, you say, Okay I, you know, I'm not God. He is, and I'll keep following him and let him reveal his
0: truth to me. And, of course, we're not denying that the New Testament has predictive prophecy. Mm-hmm. I don't want people to hear us say that that we're uh, questioning whether or not the, the New Testament authors actually speak prophetically of events beyond their own life and even beyond the time that the canon was closed, obviously. I mean, think of the second coming of Jesus and, and the events associated with that. So we're not denying the predictive prophetic element in the New Testament. We're simply saying that we need to be careful that we do not look in events today and then go back into the New Testament and try to find a typological reference that has no basis in historical fact.
2: And whatever you do, don't build a ministry off of those things as well.
1: Yeah, the early church got into this, and we all know the story of the history of hermeneutics, and we see like what Sam was talking about earlier, this allegorical approach to where everybody felt the freedom to kind of act like these apostles and, and pull things out and find things, find hidden layers, deeper layers. And and that's the, that that's the thing that whenever this becomes a difficult passage, what people can draw from this is a following in the footsteps of the apostles in this sense. I'm going to be able to find things because the Holy Spirit is in me that nobody else can find in the Old Testament. I'm going to be able to apply this passage to me in a unique way that the author did not originally intend because the Holy Spirit is within me, giving me this decoder of glasses that, that see what nobody else can see. And that's the thing that I know that all three of us would sit here and say, "Hey, huh? You know, the scripture means something, and and it is not something that is a wax nose we can turn it any way we want. Mm-hmm. And our job is to discover what it means, and and to be able to see what the intent of the author was." So that we, because I'm not inspired, I can't, I can't see anything uh, deeper than, than what is already there. And so it is not a magic book. It is not a, a book where you find immediate fulfillment for our own lives in the text of Scripture whenever it's not there. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is, this is why this is a difficult passage. Why did Matthew do that? And how does it apply to us? And so I hope uh, our listeners have enjoyed and uh, benefited from this broadcast. And we will continue the series next week. Maybe a couple of more, I think. Mm -hmm. Very good. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.